Luke, uh, chapter 23. I'm continuing through John, but I'm uh, taking these sort of diversionary uh, passages. And this part of this, just me personally, uh, is what caught my attention and uh, what I was doing. There were basically, if you if you take all the gospels together, there were nine nine statements made from the cross. Now, there, Jesus said a lot leading up to it. Um, of course, he said a lot after the resurrection. But I, I really narrowed that down. I want to. I just wanted to look at what he said while he was upon the cross. Uh, and I want to pause on a couple of those and look at those more closely. But generally, uh, you can write these down, but they are, the first one is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that's from Matthew 27. It's recorded also in Mark 15, 34. And as you know, uh, that's a quotation really from Psalm 22, which is a clearly messianic the second one is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that's in Luke 23, 34. The third one is Luke 23, 43. Today you will be with me in paradise. John 19, 26. Woman, behold your son. In John 19, 27. Behold your mother. Number six is, I am thirsty. John 19, 28. Number seven is John 19.30, it is finished. And the eighth one is into your hands, I commit my spirit, Luke 23.46. Uh, I, I read those out because as I was studying, when you're reading, reading the Gospels, it seems like there was more said from the cross. Um, and that's stunningly little considering what was, what was happening on the cross. And and what that was purchasing for us. So if you take all the, all the accomplishments of Christ upon the cross and just, just think about those for a minute, eight statements seems like relatively little to be said from the cross. In fact, part of that was very practical in regards to uh, his turning his care of his mother, I think, over to John and and. He pointed that out to John, identifying that with her, I thirst. Those are more practical, it seems. So if you really boiled them down to necessarily theological in depth, which they all would be in some ways, but if you narrowed them down to that, there were really those three. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, it is finished. And perhaps you could do the other ones, Father, forgive them. And then today you'll be with me in paradise. So. That's what I want to look at with you today. But the passage I want to land on is in Luke chapter 23. And I'll just read from beginning in verse 53. When they came to the place called the skull or Golgotha, there they crucified him, the criminals and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. <clears throat> 
Now there was also an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there were hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus crying out with a loud vo voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last now, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was, was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for the spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. So that's John's story or his narrative in regards to the cross you go to Matthew Mark and Luke and that's what sent me out of those and I just want to uh, take a minute to go over the ones I said as I've already said in Mark, Matthew 27 46 and Mark 15 34 Jesus says from the cross my God my God why hast thou forsaken me there's a pretty good chance that that was the first utterance upon the cross uh, if not father forgive them might have been first um, there is some indication that even as they were crucifying him, he was saying, he kept saying, Father, forgive them. So obviously, Psalm 22, if you'll turn there with me, I want you to see that. But it's very, very rich. Um, I used to say when I was studying this, was Jesus at this point having the presence of mind to quote the psalmist? Or was the psalmist looking forward uh, prophetically quoting Christ on the cross. But as many times, many folks call it the psalm, the cross psalm. Psalm 22 begins like this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now listen to how, how parallel it is in many ways. Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. The psalmist speaking to himself, uh, I think encouraging his own heart to trust in the Lord here. But he says of himself, but I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. This is where there were messianic references here. I think all who see me sneer at me and they separate the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. You are, yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when my, upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. But not far from me, for be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. 
My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen, you will answer me, and I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him, all you descendants of Jacob. Glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face, his face from them. But when he cried to him for help, he heard, from you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who, those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. And those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. I will be it will be told of the Lord to the coming generations, and they will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. So I read that so you can see the obvious parallels with the cross. Uh, in fact, I do think there was prophetic, the, the psalmist was speaking prophetically in many of those ways, although he's speaking of himself certainly, but clearly Jesus is citing that from the cross. And I think... Uh, had they listened to that and had they thought or remembered the psalm, if they did, they would immediately understand that even from the cross, he was doing what they had called earlier blasphemy. Uh, he's, he's claiming to be the fulfillment or the prophesied Messiah in Psalm 22 from the cross. Now, I do think it's also reflecting his experience. I do believe the prophet, the, the psalmist was being prophetic. He was looking forward in some ways and hearing words from the cross. So I don't think Jesus is just up there, well, I better quote Psalm 22 so they'll think I'm who I, who I say I am. In fact, I think the prophet was hearing Jesus prophetically and citing his words in the, in the psalm itself. And so Jesus suffering from the foundation of the world, as it were, so that's his first statement from the cross, maybe not chronologically, but one of the first statements from the, from the cross. Obviously, <clears throat> that parallels as well with Isaiah 53. <clears throat> the second one, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do in Luke 23, 34. It strikes me that he's asking for forgiveness while, while dying, which itself was the means of that forgiveness. Uh, if you think about it in that way, those his tormentors, those who were persecuting and prosecuting and executing him, he's praying for forgiveness for them. Uh, he says because they don't know what they do, but in order for that forgiveness to come to them, he has to endure the punishment for it. So that's really striking is that Jesus is praying now for the forgiveness of the very ones who are crucifying him, knowing that what he's calling upon is all the wrath due that sin to fall upon himself. And so it's almost a, uh, you might say it's almost like a suicide prayer here. In fact, 
If, he, if the Lord forgives them, then there must be a, a merit for the forgiveness. Where's the forgiveness going to come from? Because God is not, God is not unjust. And so God is righteous, God is just, so if there's forgiveness coming, where is it going to come from? Well, Jesus is providing the means for that forgiveness to come to them. So it's really powerful that Jesus is praying for their forgiveness. Now you could, I think people read that and they think it says something about the compassion of Christ, and surely it does, but it's not an unwise, it is not an undiscerning compassion. He knows exactly how the forgiveness is going to be extended to those, and it's through the very thing that he's experiencing even at that moment. <coughs> really stunning. You could go on about that for a while, and I'll, I'll touch on that in a few moments, but the third one here, as I've already mentioned, the thieves on the cross, which is why I led from the <coughs> Luke 23. And Jesus says to him after his comments to his friend, and then he turns to Christ and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So the third word from Christ upon the cross is truly, I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. It's really striking, and I'll come back to this, but just briefly here, from the words of this thief, God is just and to be feared. Sin is deserving of condemnation. Jesus has no sin. Jesus is a king. He has a kingdom in which he will reign. And Jesus is the one to whom he appeals. Uh, that thief said a lot. The thief said a lot. I hear him thrown out a lot of times as, as an example of folks about baptism and different things saves you. And the argument there, well, he didn't have time to be baptized. And, the, and there's just this, almost this this thief knew nothing. <laughs> and, and truly, uh, he's saved by the grace of God just as we are. But his confession tells me that there were some things being revealed to him in the watching and the observing of the sufferings of Christ. And I'll come back to those in a moment. And of course, woman, behold your son as I've already shared and behold your mother in John 19, 26 and 27. Certainly Jesus is departing. Uh, he cared for his mother and he also cared for his disciples. And clearly he's turning over the care to his mother now to John. And he's identifying and saying to John, your mother, behold, mom, here's your son. He's going to be taking care of you. I'm committing your care to John. And then he looks to John and says, John, your mother. You treat her as a mother. Her, her well-being is in your stewardship now. So John has a heavy burden now. He's got to look after the mother of Christ. And so I think those are very practical. In John 19, 28, I'm thirsty. I think if anything, it demonstrates there the humanity of Christ. He's not an apparition. It's not a, it's not a play or, or some mythological crucifixion. It's not some metaphor this is a real human being, fully man, fully God. And just as he thirsted in his temptation and hungered, so now upon the cross he has thirst. He has thirst. Now he would not take the, the wine that would dull the pain. He refused to take that. He, I think he had to endure the fullness of the wrath of God there. But, but here I think he's speaking of just his thirst in general. And we understand from one gospel that they did put up some sour wine, which he took to relieve that. But if it could mean a lot of things, but at minimal, it means that Jesus is a man. You can imagine, I was thinking about this, the, not only the sweating 
and the labor in the garden, but then the suffering itself and the scourging, which have resulted in a massive loss of blood. And then the, no water along the way as well. So he's upon the cross now. He's completely dehydrated. Every ounce of fluid in his body is rushing to the, to the vital areas to be trying to sustain life. And there is no fluid in the body of Christ. It is all leaking and pouring out of him. And in this moment, he says, I thirst. I think it's clear when he says that. If you thought he was some apparition or if you thought he was some God and just some apparition going to the cross, you have to deal with the fact that he was thirsting and in this tortured position. In John 19.30, his words, it is finished. That is a massive statement. I've understood the Greek for that to be years that Tetelestai, and it was actually a, a stamp that would mark upon a, be, a bill that had been paid. If you owed something to someone, you would send, send that bill to them or give them that bill, pay it off, and they would mark that Tetelestai finished. It is finished. The, the debt has been paid. You are no longer obligated in any way in that moment. And that's the word he has used here. What does that mean? <laughs> In John 17, he's praying to the Father and he says, Father, I have accomplished the work that you sent me to do. Uh, he may have been talking about the earthly work or he may have been thinking forward to the certainty of what he was about to do at the cross. But he's saying, I have glorified you by accomplishing that work. But when he says here, it is finished, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful meditation to think about what's finished. My life, my earthly mission, their salvation, I, I think it extends to all the works of Christ. I think my sanctification is finished in the suffering and the merit of Christ's suffering. I think all the mercy necessary for my sanctification and ultimate glorification was finished upon the cross. I mean, I, I, I absolutely think it expands that far. Now, if someone wants to, wants to narrow that down, I will, I'll hear the argument, but I believe it extends to everything that has been accomplished in Christ. It is the debt has been paid. Our sin debt taken upon himself, the sacrifice is sufficient. It is stamped paid. He has endured already because he's already said, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? I think at that moment, all the eternal fellowship of the Father and the Son was obscured by our sins. And in that moment, it forced from his gut, as it were, as his heart, my Father, why hast thou forsaken me? Because in that moment, he is forsaken in our, with our sins upon him. So I think that's why he could say near the end of his life here upon the cross that it is finished. That was what I had come for. Tetelestai, it is finished. Let me ask you this. Do you think Jesus' work upon the cross made salvation available? Or do you think it made it certain? Uh, available says that he suffered this way and here it is, and you decide. And that's what I mean by, is it make it available, or does he make it certain? Does certain, absolutely certain. That's what I think he means here when he says it is finished. Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. He didn't come to say, I have come to make available a way out for sinners who are wise enough to accept me. I have come to seek them out 
and to do the work that saves them, which itself brings about their confession and ultimately their relationship with Christ. So I think there is a determinative nature to the works of Christ upon the cross. It is finished. Let me just say this. I don't know what year each of you got saved. I don't, uh, I don't know exactly the year that I got saved. I know that I was 29 years old. But I believe when Jesus said it was finished, that was done. That was finished. That was already ordained from the foundation of the world. He had already chosen me in Christ before the foundation of the world. And it manifested itself in history and in my life. And I believe when I read the word, it is finished, it means as much to me as it meant to those standing around the cross. When he went to the cross and he gave his life upon the cross, for me, it was made certain that I would come to Christ. And I think for you as well who have believed, it is finished. And then the final one in Luke 23 through 46, into your hands I commit my spirit. He breathed his last, and the body and the flesh of Christ is laid down now in death. The wages of sin is death. If there's no sin, Jesus doesn't die. Uh, so it's indicative that he had sin upon him in that moment. But I want to share with you, <clears throat> going back to Luke 23, because I want you to see this. In 39 through 43, notice as well, at first, both of the criminals, the other gospels say they were both, both hurling insults at Christ. Uh, you can imagine uh, vicious, perhaps, criminals, vitriolic in their sentence, resentful and bitter because they were dying and they've being crucified here with this one who claims to be the Messiah and who everybody uh, is accusing of being the Messiah. And so they're hurling insults at him. And I think both of them were participating. Save us, save yourself. If you're the Messiah, get us off of the cross. We'll follow you. I think they were both hurling insults. But Jesus, quiet as he was, and the statements that he made, they were all privy to. They heard, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They heard, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Perhaps by the present active indicative, an ongoing statement of Jesus Christ there. They heard these things. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. They heard all the what was being said upon the cross. And one criminal continues in his, in his rage. He says in verse 37, one of them says, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Come down off the cross. They were mocking him. And one of the criminals in verse 39 who were with him was hurling abuse at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And so Jesus is getting this wound upon the wounds he already has. But something happened in the life of the other. In fact, I actually believe the cross was brought, brought that about. <laughs> so one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him. And saying, you are, not the, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuked him and said, Do you not even fear God, since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? Now, theologically, if you've done systematic theology courses, I remember I shared this years ago, but I had, I had this conversation with this guy, uh, and he was acting like 
the thief didn't know anything. So you don't have to know anything to be saved. And, and he, was, he was kind of an anti-intellectual argument, like, like I was wasting my time studying theology. And I remember feeling upset about that. In fact, it got my dander up a little bit because he was implying to me that I'm wasting my time. All you got to do is just believe. You don't have to know all that stuff. It's not even really that important to know all that stuff. And, and so I took his argument home regarding the thief, and I thought about that. And what I come up with is the thief indicates some knowledge in hamartiology, theology, Christology, soteriology, and eschatology. <laughs> so there's five categories of systematic theology demonstrated by the thief on the cross. I say hamartiology because hamartia is sin. It's the, it's the doctrine of sin. And notice what he says. One of the criminals was hurling abuse, but the other answers and rebukes him saying, do you not even fear God since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? So we understand something about sin here. Sin deserves condemnation because he goes on and says, and we, you and I, Mr. Thief, are indeed suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. So three ideas about sin that he demonstrates here. Number one is that sin is a righteous, just condemnation deserved and earned by the sinner. That's pretty clear. So, so the guy I was talking with, if he says it doesn't matter, he don't have to know all these things. Well, he did. Because he expressed to his partner who was rebuking Christ and who was, who was mocking Christ himself, saying, if you're the Savior, come down and save us as well. And he says to him, you need to quieten down over there because you and I are under the same condemnation. We are sinners. We have earned what we are receiving now. It is just that we are under condemnation because we are sinners in contrast to him. That's, that's saying a lot about your theology. I wonder if sin is preached like that in the church today. It is not just a cultural, environmental downfall. It is not just a moral drift. It is a rooted issue in our natures. And we are blind to it in many ways and we will spend all of our lost lives trying to justify our sinfulness. And even if we realize that our sins causes us trouble and we are able to discipline ourselves not to sin in that way, we've done nothing to the root that produced the sin in the start uh, to start with. We are by nature's sinners. And this thief confesses before Christ and in the hearing of Christ that he understands that sin deserves condemnation. And there is a just justice to that condemnation. And he also understands that his sins caused him to deserve the condemnation that he was receiving. That's, that's knowing a lot about sin. And you know as a Christian, and if you're not a Christian, you need to understand that your sin has a condemnation that it deserves. The wages of sin is death. All the way back in the garden, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. There, if, if there is a sin, there must be a death. No two ways about it. And that is just. And that is righteous. And that's exactly what he acknowledges here. He has a 
pretty solid theology in verse 40 because he says initially, do you not fear God? Do you not fear God? So this thief is indicating some sense that God ought to be reverenced and feared, especially in their condition under this condemnation. How dare you speak against God in the presence of God as it were in Christ? Do you not, do you not understand that God ought to be feared? All the more so by we who are under condemnation because of our sins. But he goes on to say that it is a justly deserved condemnation. So he says something about his understanding of the righteousness and the holiness of God. There is a fear of God and there is a, a deep reverence for God. I, I hear this all the time. You hear me say it sometimes, but sometimes I hear people say fear and they just they say, well, that just really means reverence. Be careful with that because Whenever I was under my condemnation and under the weight of my sins, the idea of a holy God made me tremble, not with reverence, with fear, real fear. I was frightened at the prospect of a completely, infinitely holy God glaring down into my deeply corrupt nature, not just my sins, but the root of the nature that produced them. And what were going to be the consequences of coming into the presence of that sort of holiness? And it made me afraid. Yes, reverence was a part of it because it put me on my knees before him because I understood in that moment the only hope for me was that that God could somehow be merciful to me. That somehow his justice could be diverted from me and he could receive me to himself. And there was a reverence produced in that moment. This thief seems to understand something about God and perhaps the most important thing about God. His holiness. It really gets me. Somebody, I won't get into details, but somebody sent me something about a service that was done on Easter Sunday. And, and I think it was, uh, it was done the same way last year. And I remember making a comment. Well, it must have sold well last year because they repeated again this year. And the person that sent me was outraged because there was not a Bible open, not a verse read, nothing on Easter Sunday morning. And I said, I think some of the, some of the things we employ now, even, even in the institutional church, are to me a reflection of an absence of a sensibility to the infinite holiness of God Almighty. There are things that we do we would dare not do in His immediate presence, and yet we do them anyway, right? They're done all over this nation. People say things sometimes on the newscast and on programs that make they shudder, they make me shudder to think what, what they would feel in their own hearts were they sensitive to the holiness of the God whom they are speaking against. I mean, there is a there is a clear biblical mandate in regards to the easy and loose and careless use of the name of God because he is holy. This thief understood that. He has a pretty clear Christology as well, not, not only by what he's been witnessing on the cross, but in 41, he says here regarding Christ, for we indeed are suffering justice, but for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. 
So somewhere on the cross, he concluded that there here is an innocent man undergoing the same condemnation that we're undergoing. We deserve it. He doesn't. Yet here he is right beside us. At the very minimal, he seems to understand that Jesus that Jesus is innocent. You might even press that to say that there is a perfection in Christ. There is a man here without sin suffering this condemnation. We deserve it. You need to be quiet over there, brother thief, because we are justly getting what we deserve, but not the one in the middle, not him. He doesn't deserve this. He is a just man. He has a pretty clear Christology in regards to the sinlessness of Christ. But here's what struck me. He's appealing to a dying man later on. I mean, he's, he's appealing now to Jesus on the cross under the same condemnation, even if he thought he was centrally or just in the immediate context just if he, he knows something more because this just man in the middle, he later says, remember me when you come into your kingdom as well. So he must believe something about this one is going to rise from the dead. And this one is a king and has a kingdom. Pretty clear Christology. Sinless perfection, king reigning in the kingdom, rising from the dead. I don't know about you, but if I'm being crucified with three, two, uh, if I'm being crucified with three, uh, two other men, and I want to be delivered from my suffering, I'm, I'm not going to turn to one dying with me and say, "Hey, remember me." I'm going to be pleading with the guard. I'm going to be pleading with the religious leaders. I'm going to be pleading with somebody to get me down off of the cross. You deliver me because you have the capacity. Because you're living. This one beside me is going to be dead in a few minutes, just like I am. He's not delivering anybody. But this thief saw through that. The other thief wanted him to come down if you're the Messiah and get us down. This man was content to be there hanging with him and understanding that he was going to die as well because he's coming into a kingdom. I'd say this thief had a pretty clear grasp of Christ, don't you? Do you think about Christ in his sinless perfection? Do you ever meditate upon what it's like to walk in perfect fellowship with the Father without the slightest obscurity between that fellowship because of sin? Do you, we can't even imagine what it's like to not have a sin nature. I mean, to sin would have been to go against his nature. For us to sin is to go along with our nature. And here is this Jesus who takes upon himself our sins and for the first time experiences what sin happens in the hearts of man. And he finds this fellowship with the Father clouded and darkened to that moment, so much so that he cries out. So this thief had a pretty solid Christology. Verse 42 I say soteriology because he appeals to Jesus. He did apparently believe in the resurrection. He says to him, verse 42, and he, as he was dying, and he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So his appeal was to Jesus. So that's, the right, that's a right soteriology. That is a right doctrine of salvation. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. 
That is a solid soteriology. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So he's appealing to the right person here. Through our culture, we appeal to a lot of other things. In fact, I would say culturally, we probably have a weaker soteriology than the, than the thief on the cross had because he knew there was a singular person who could deliver him into the kingdom. And he's hanging right beside me. He appealed to Christ alone. We appeal to churches, denominations, associations, uh, confessions, all sorts of other things. We appeal to all these other things as though they are somehow going to contribute to salvation. And it is Christ alone. This thief did, my friend was right. This thief didn't have a systematic theology study uh, to go home to. He didn't have a lot of scrolls. He didn't have a lot of spiritual information. He certainly didn't belong to a local church. And he probably had been long kicked out of the synagogue. I mean, he had, no, he had nothing to offer other than a, a, an appeal to the mercy of the one hanging beside him. And that's exactly what he did. And I think that's a pretty solid soteriology. The doctrine of salvation. I don't think you can get much more grounded than that. And finally, verse 42 also, I think he had a pretty solid eschatology because he says to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So this thief is anticipating that there is a kingdom that is, that is going to be entered into through this death. Through this dying of Christ and this resurrection, he is going to come into a kingdom. He is a king, and he's appealing to him, remember me when you come into that kingdom. That's a good eschatology. At the very minimum, it's an indication that he believed that Jesus was not going to stay dead. In fact, they put the sign above his head and marked it there, king of the Jews. And that, that was true, but he's more, far more than the king of the Jews. He's the king. He's the king, period. And this thief recognized this man is a king and he is going to inherit a kingdom through this death. So, Lord, after this day is over, when I'm died and you're dead, Lord, when you come up from that dead and enter into your kingdom, would you in that place remember me? That's a good eschatology. That's a good eschatology. I don't think he thought this death of this Jesus was going to be forever. Or very long at all. There was going to be a resurrection. And he appeals to Christ. Would you remember me? And I love what Jesus says to him. Truly I say to you today. You shall be with me in paradise. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, some people uh, say he meant. I'm saying this today. And some people say no. He means today. In other words. When we leave this body. We're going to be in paradise together. You can have that argument amongst yourselves, but my point is beyond that. And it is to say that I'm inheriting a kingdom and, and I'm acknowledging your appeal to me as a right appeal. And when I inherit that kingdom, even on this day, you're going to be with me. I'm not going to leave you in the grave. I'm bringing you up with me as well. Rise, risen from the dead. So it's an assurance of his future as well. If he's going to be remembered in the kingdom, then he must be existing when the kingdom comes. And Jesus says, essentially, you will be because you have been joined to Christ, as it were, by faith, even upon the cross. So before, so before you dismiss the thief as not needing to know anything, it is clearly evident to me that through the power of the Spirit and through the witness, as it were, of Christ Himself upon the cross, He learned some things before He died. 
Did you have time to baptize him in water? No, but I think he was baptized into Christ before he ever died on the cross. And I think because he was, when he was risen from the dead, that that thief is with Christ at this very moment. He did remember him when he came into his kingdom. And Jesus is with him. He is with Christ now, I believe. So I think we would do well to have at least, at minimum, the theology of the thief. Uh, I've joked about that one time. I said, I know, I know about as much as a thief. And then get into this conversation. Uh, he did know some things about Christ. And here's the most important thing. What he knew was true. What he knew was true. I honestly believe, I'm just guessing here, but I honestly believe most of us could probably throw out 30% at minimum of what we believe uh, that finds no root in Scripture. Now, there is a principle involved, but you've heard this as well, but cleanliness is next to godliness. I heard that growing up, and I thought it was in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. The principle could be worked out in the Bible, but the verse, cleanliness is next to godliness, is not in the Bible. So don't go home and be dirty. It's not, it's not an exhortation not to stay clean. There is, there is a biblical, there is order involved there, but the statement is not in there. And there are a lot of things that we glean through the years, uh, just cliches that don't have any root in Scripture, at least the way we understand those. And I think a lot of our theology, a lot of our sanctification is the putting off of those things that are not borne out by Scripture. And it may be a lifelong process. So the cross was an extraordinary event, to say the least. Jesus is upon the cross, and the thief recognized these things about the cross. And I think we would do well to think about what he thought about. So stand with me and let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for the salvation of those in this room who have come to trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you that you didn't go to the cross to, to give me a, to make an offer. Lord, you came to cross, you, you went to the cross to purchase me. And Father, that purchase was made and you brought me to you. And Father, I thank you for that great gift and that great mercy. I thank you for that in the lives of those in this room tonight. Lord, none of us came to Jesus because we were smart enough or wise enough or sensitive enough or good enough. We were all stricken with the same sinful nature. It may be that some of us manifested that more than others, but the bottom line was all were under condemnation. Just like the thief on the cross, we understood in Christ that we were under that condemnation justly and that a righteous and holy God had every demand every obligation to judge that sin but father thank you that there is mercy that christ came into the world to receive that judgment for us and because of that father we are we are declared righteous in him and that brings us access to you thank you for that great blessing father i pray that we'd be humbled by that reality always not that we would be exalted but father that we would exalt exalt christ always Bless those who've come tonight, Father. I thank you for them, for their devotion to Christ, or their, their devotion to your, your church, Lord. And I just pray that you'll help us continue to grow into Christ together. We ask in Jesus' name.